walked out of that room and I walked out of my career, my international career. It's widely believed that this is the phone that has changed phones forever. Turning to our top story this morning, and that is confirmation of the first case of COVID-19 in the Republic. We have been looking back over the last 20 years at the most influential moments of that uh, two decade period. Uh, And today we are looking at yet another one of these influential moments. And we are looking at COVID, very possibly the most influential moment. And I am joined now by uh, Aid Thomas, who is the Oxford Vaccine Trial Volunteer, one of those who took part in one of the big trials that allowed us to to bring vaccines to markets, I suppose. Uh, And Aid joins me now. Aid, first of all, when you took on the vaccine trial, obviously you were we had no information about whether there would be risks to you personally and, and you couldn't have had that information. Why did you decide to do it? Well, uh, good good morning. Great great to talk to you. I mean, uh, I mean, asked that question a fair amount and it was just a kind of sense of um, an old fashioned sense of duty, really. Um, I mean, there was there was, there was a, a good deal of information and the, the Oxford vaccine trial were extremely good at communicating the level of risk. And I I perceived it to be extremely low and I, and I trust in medical science. So I was very happy to take part. And did you have a sense as well of perhaps duty uh, of trying to help the, the collective effort? Was, was that part of what, what, what influenced you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely. I mean, that, that key word was a sense of duty. I mean, I'd always sort of wondered myself whether when times got bad, whether I would be able to step up to the mark. So I, I felt like it was a kind of a time to test myself. Yeah, so I was you were the front line too. I was happy to do so. Um, yeah, do, yeah. How, yeah. how did it go for you? They obviously brought you in, gave you information and then started yeah. to in- inject you. How many injections did you have? Um, so there, there, were, there was a course of... Um, of one month of, of trial tests, but there was only only one actual vaccine jab. Okay. Um, and then there's a fairly long tail across the test of um, tests across a year. So I'll have a final test after one year. And they were antibody testing, things like things like that, and looking at other, I suppose, bodily functions to make sure everything was okay. Yeah, yeah, regular sort of heart, heart rate tests, blood tests, urine tests, so, did, uh, you know, general sort of questionnaire did, health check tests. Did you have any any side effects to the vaccine? Did you, did you tolerate it well? Yeah, uh, my only side effect was the evening of the of the actual jab, feeling very moderately tired. But I'm the father of three young children, and to be honest, it could have uh, been your I normal. Feel pretty, I feel pretty tired most evenings anyway, and I couldn't really differentiate it from one evening to the other. And I suppose, lastly, I just, just so that's good. So no side effects. And the mm. the feedback that they're giving you are they giving you feedback when they, when they do these these ongoing tests on you about whether or not you are now immune? Yeah. Do, do you get that kind of feedback? Uh, we will. I mean, now that the now that it's been unlocked, now that the control group. Um, has been unlocked and that you know and they know which is the controlled group and which was the active group they will tell us which group we were in but you know medical science requires a control group so it's just good to have been part of the trial whether I was the active group or the control group all right and you don't know yet which is which one you are uh, no, but we will be told. So, um, yeah, that will be an interesting. Look, that will be an interesting. Can Can I say on behalf of of the rest of humanity, thank you very much for taking part in the vaccine trial. We actually needed oh, okay. vitally people yeah. like you to do so, and we do appreciate it. And uh, COVID is that your everybody out there five three one zero six at a cost of thirty cent? Is that your most influential moment? It certainly changed the world in a big, big way. Um, 
Time now for our special series exploring News Talk's 20 most influential moments of the past two decades. Every day, we're looking back at a different moment chosen by you, the News Talk listeners. Today, we're going back in time, but not very much. We're reflecting on something we're still living with. That's the COVID-19 pandemic. When the virus first took hold at the start of the year, the current Minister for Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, Simon Harris, was Minister for Health. And he joins us now to reflect on that period. Minister, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Post. Thank you for having me. Now, you had all sorts of headaches on your desk as Minister for Health, ongoing, whether it's the trolley crisis, the paediatric hospital, all of those things. And then on top of that, a pandemic. When did you first realise that this was not just, you know, a seasonal flu, something that might be confined like MERS to the Middle East or SARS to Asia? something that was going to bother us? So really, I, I think I think February, around the middle of February, it became a very, very apparent that a virus that our doctors, not just here in Ireland, but across the world and the WHO and others had been tracking far away in China had come an awful lot, an awful lot nearer. Uh, it was now on mainland Europe. It was in Italy. Um, far away places like China had now been replaced with places like Italy, where many Irish people would have been familiar and holidayed and known. And it was clear that the virus was beginning to to creep towards us. I suppose it came at a very a very peculiar time of the political cycle because you were talking about all the, the challenges that a Minister for Health faces. But of course, we'd had a general election uh, in our country. And in many ways, um, I was expecting my tenure as health minister to, to have come to an end at that stage. Uh, but instead of uh, instead of boxing up the office after that general election, I found myself involved in um, the most intense work I've ever ever been involved in and probably ever will be involved in in my life as we tried to put together our response, our response in this country. So we had our, as you know, and as listeners will remember, it seems like a lifetime ago now, we had our very first case uh, in, in the Republic on the 29th of, of, of February. But really it was apparent in the weeks before that um, that this was something that was very much going to visit our shores. Now, the, the kind of decisions that had to be taken, and we all remember when the Taoiseach was in uh, the United States and made the decision we were going into lockdown, and we did it in advance of other European countries, Did certainly did it in advance of our neighbours. What kind of talk informed that decision? So we had, it was a very bizarre situation if we think about it, because you know that a virus is about to come to your country. You know that it's going to be deadly. Um, you know that many, many, many people could lose their lives. And remember, I was getting projections at that stage that more than a million people in Ireland would get sick of this virus and tens of thousands of our citizens would die. We didn't have a medicine. Uh, we didn't at that stage have a vaccine. So really, all that you could do, along with trying to build up capacity in your health service, but all that you could do is try and alter people's behaviour, try and ask people to live in very new and different ways. And I'll always remember uh, the chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Hula, saying to me, you know, Minister, communications is is always important when it comes to public health, but actually effective communications uh, can save lives in, in, in a pandemic. So I suppose we, we set about in the Department of Health working on how we were going to, to really bring the people of this country on a journey, how we were going to ask them to take very difficult actions and to live their lives in very different ways, but in the knowledge that doing so gave the very best chance of them keeping themselves, their family and their community safe. And I will never, ever forget you. You, you spoke about that that time the Taoiseach addressed uh, us as a nation from, from Washington, the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar. I will never forget sitting in the Department of Health 
the night before that as the NEFIT meeting, the meeting of our public health emergency team was concluding and still being in the department at 1am and 2am in the morning. And anyone who knows the Department of Health, which has kind of become iconic at this stage, it's on our TVs every night, will know it's it's, it's a largely glass building. There's lots and lots of windows. And in, in the minister's office there, you can see right out to kind of Sandy Mount Strand, out towards the Aviva and the likes. And I remember seeing all the lights in the distance and thinking there's so many people that's, uh, you know, asleep at bed tonight, not knowing that we're sitting here in this department about to announce decisions in the morning that are going to utterly change their lives, going to close their schools, their colleges, perhaps going to result in some of them losing their jobs. But we're doing it all to, to try and save lives. A, a very surreal experience. And I'll never forget the that image of looking out and seeing all the lights in the distance. If we got credit for acting early in the lockdown, it isn't as if there weren't uh, already critics very vocal, including people on this programme, about the Cheltenham adventure that many people had yes. and certainly brought back infection. Uh, the number of Italian visitors coming for the Italian match ultimately cancelled, but still uh, people arrived. You could see them walking around the town coming from a highly infected country, the, the first European country uh, to suffer. And then the third aspect of it, and certainly on this programme, we gave a roasting uh, to yourself and your colleagues about mask wearing because it is, it it's, is. you know, I used to call it masks for slow learners yes. uh, in the department. It took you a hell of a long time uh, on some of those bases. Absolutely. And, and look, what you've said is, is entirely fair. I mean, there's absolutely nobody suggesting um, that Ireland got this perfectly right. I don't think there's a country in the world that did. I think we got a lot right as a people. I think we were very, very lucky with the medical and clinical leadership we had through this. Um, but there are things that I look back on and wonder, um, could we have done differently? And if, and to be honest, I suppose it's easy to look back now um, for me to do that now from somewhat of a remove. I think face masks, I, I think that's I think you're right. Um, I mean, I remember probably on your programme saying to you, well, you know, there's different medical opinions and, and there were. Um, and there was definitely a concern being given to me that, you know, if people started wearing face masks, they'd believe that, you know, it would provide a level of protection that it wouldn't. But there's absolutely no doubt um, that face masks have proven a very important part of our strategy. And one of my regrets is that we didn't move earlier on that though we did move in line with the, the medical advice given to us. And um, so, look, there's no doubt there's going to be things when we look back. And we must look back. Now, of course, we can't look back yet because we're not out of this pandemic yet. But we will need to look back because if you look at some of the countries that did particularly well, including some Asian countries, one of the things they did was they, they learned the lessons from SARS. They built up their infrastructure and they kept it in place. And there will be more pandemics in the world. There'll be more pandemics in this country. So it is important that we look back. It's important that we prepare for the next pandemic as well. Now, the other regret I'm sure you, you have is about nursing homes, because we knew yes. from the Italian experience that the most vulnerable were the elderly and those who were sick and had underlying conditions. And of course, what kind of a population do you have in nursing homes? By and large, they're people who can no longer live at home, so they tend to be frail, elderly, or they have underlying conditions that need ongoing treatment. And yet, and yet, and yet it took a long time for that penny to drop and uh, much of the death rate occurred in those facilities. So I think about this every day, um, several times a day. Um, and I think I think there's a couple of things I'd say on it. I mean, firstly, firstly, there were nursing homes, and I do want to say this, who did absolutely everything right um, and still the virus managed to get into their into their nursing homes. So 
it, I suppose the point I'm making is it is extremely difficult to keep a very infectious disease out of nursing homes. And we see this, we see this every year, even with, with, with the flu, with the seasonal influenza, trying to keep an infectious disease out of a nursing home is an extraordinary challenge. There are things that I absolutely wish we could have done sooner and earlier. I think of two things. I think of the serial testing program and I think of the provision of personal protective equipment. But having said that, when I look back at the facts at the time, and I've done this, I genuinely believe that the HSE and the Department of Health acted as quickly as was humanly possible with what they had available to them. So you'll remember, and, and I'll always be grateful for this, Paul Reed and the HSE and others moving might and main to try and get personal protective equipment into our country when other countries, including larger countries like Britain right beside us, were having difficulty actually even getting PPE, having to build up a testing system from scratch that didn't exist uh, you know, for a virus that wasn't known about only months earlier. So had you been able to test quicker and provide PPE quicker, there's no doubt that would have made a very significant difference. Um, but I but I do also have to be honest, as difficult as it is, it, because it would be wrong of me to suggest that, you know, these things were there and just weren't provided. Um, even today, uh, the idea of daily antigen testing seems to, you know, just passed over the heads of people uh, who could make decisions on these. Because if I was in a nursing home, I would like to think that anyone who was ministering at my bedside would have been tested that morning. Um, you don't have to go PCR if you test every day with antigen testing. Uh, you can be pretty secure that you're non-infectious. Uh, so I'm just wondering why... You know, we don't do that kind of thing here. They're doing it in a school in London as a pilot. I, th I saw a report overnight on that very topic to make sure that people can go home to their families and their elderly relatives and so on and do do so in in some degree of safety. And we're and we're doing it in the sector I now have responsibility for in the university sector, we've started using antigen tests as part of our strategy um, in, for example, the University of Limerick, and I'm hoping to see it in more universities. I'm conscious as a politician since the start of this pandemic, I've always said that I'll be led by the medical advice. Um, and I do know that the medical preference, certainly when I was in health, and I presume it hasn't changed, um, was that they wanted to roll out a very robust serial testing um, program for nursing homes, which they do now have in place. And in fairness to the HSE, uh, to NEFIT and to our doctors, you will see in so many other countries where the second wave came um, a higher number of fatalities than the first wave. We haven't seen that in our country. And that suggests to me, not that we can be complacent or cocksure in any way, but it would suggest to me that a lot of the measures that they now have in place and the infrastructure that has been built up is saving lives today right across our country, but including in nursing homes. Yeah, I was a bit worried, though, uh, yesterday when I looked at the figures uh, and you can yes. look at on your COVID tracker, uh, 329 cases yesterday, eight deaths. And we're wondering, since we're a couple of weeks into the uh, elimination, uh, well, the, the phasing back of the, uh, the, the tier five down to uh, three, that we're going to see a lot more of this in the coming days. Yeah, I, I must say, and I, I think people who got to know me during the pandemic will know I'm generally quite hopeful and optimistic um, in my in my disposition. But I, I am worried at the moment, um, Pat. I'm, I'm actually very worried. And I suppose I'm worried for a couple of reasons. I'm worried that now we're hearing so much good news about vaccines, and thank God we are, mm. that that could somehow or other muddy the message and that people could think, well, look, the vaccine's on its way. People have started getting the vaccine in the north. They'll start getting it here very shortly. You know, the end is in sight. And in many ways, I do believe 2021 could well see the end of COVID. But there's a very, very dangerous period here. Uh, we saw it in the US around Thanksgiving. 
uh, where a lot of increased social activity did lead to a lot of extra cases. Um, we saw Chancellor Merkel having to make really difficult decisions in Germany, a country that's been doing very well during this pandemic. Similarly, in the Netherlands, in London, uh, and of course, on the on this island in Northern Ireland, a uh, situation in Antrim yesterday with, with ambulances um, yeah. parked outside the hospital. So we are at a very, very fragile time. Um, and and I'm, also, I'm also a little bit worried that, I suppose, because we're talking about this for so long, that even the daily figures that get reported on the number of people who've passed away, I'm not sure they, I'm not sure they maybe get the same prominence that they used to. So yesterday, eight deaths were notified to the Department of Health. Now that doesn't mean eight people died yesterday, but it does mean eight people in recent days died of COVID-19. These are our family. They are our friends. They are people in our community, and there are still people losing their lives. So what what I would say to the to the Irish people is we are now for the very first time able to begin to pave a way out of this horrific crisis that has impacted every single one of us. But we can't we, we can't overemphasize that and kind of suggest that the end is here. It's not, but the beginning of the end I, is I here. I mean, the, the, the warning you'd say to people, you don't want to be the last man shot before the armistice. You know, that's basically what <laughs> people <laughs> should be should be worried about. Yeah. And you also... Um, yeah. Honor your dad this Christmas and make them sick. So the actions that you or I take in our own personal lives. So in other words, I'd be asking people to reduce your social context now, so that when you do go home to see mum or dad uh, at Christmas, um, you minimise the chance of making them or anybody else yeah. sick. And we have to be vigilant. I see in the United States, the FDA has just produced uh, authorised the sale of a home antigen testing kit, which will help people, I suppose, to maybe continue to go to work and uh, so on and socialise perhaps uh, once it becomes uh, accepted. Um, you have other yes. things on your agenda, of course, as sure. Minister for uh, Further and Higher Education. And you mentioned the business of students going back on campus uh, and, uh, you know, first years getting a, a college experience, which might have been denied them. Um, how can they do that safely? So, yeah, and I need to be honest and blunt with people on this because there's been too much maybe false expectation or hope given to students. I'm conscious particularly of first year students and how messed around they must have felt over the leaving cert as well. So the truth of the matter is once our country is at level three, level four or level five, the bulk of college life will be online. So that is just the hard truth of the reality at the moment based on the public health advice. However, I'm really worried about I'm worried about students in general. I'm particularly worried about our first year students. They last sat in a school in March. They then had their leaving search not being able to happen. They didn't have a graduation. They didn't have a Debs. They got to college against all the odds. Um, and yet, maybe college has been the box bedroom at home or the corner of the kitchen table. So I've met with all our institutions. And I suppose we have a shared ambition to make sure that in the new year, all of our first year students can get invited in a way that is appropriate to visit the college, maybe to be inducted, maybe to meet a few lecturers, maybe to play sport because our sporting facilities are back open, see the libraries, they're open. So our colleges, and they'll each have to do this in a different way because they come in different shapes and different sizes and they'll have to apply the public health guidance that works for their setting. But first year students and indeed all students can expect to hear uh, from their universities or their institute of technology about how they're going to try in a safe way increase on-campus presence. Now, let, let that not be misinterpreted. Uh, large lectures will be remaining online, but there's no reason, being very honest, that a tutorial with six or seven or eight students uh, could take place. There's no reason why, and indeed our libraries are open today in colleges and um, sports facilities, as I've said, are back open too. So I'm not, I'm not overly worried about the educational perspective, actually, because that seems to be going okay online, and, and that's what my agencies tell me. I am worried, though, about the welfare and the mental health and well-being of our young people. I suppose the the um, controversy du jour is the one about GMIT and uh, 
uh, you know, students being talked about by um, lecturers and unfortunately overheard on Zoom. Uh, I've no doubt that all sorts of people. I'm sure you and your officials talked about my programme from time to time when we were having a go at you on various topics and you wouldn't have wanted that to go out on Zoom. What do you do about a situation where confidence has been undermined? So, look, I think let's let's be very honest here. Anybody who heard that language um, can only but be disappointed and disgusted by it. Um, the words were, were harsh and in many ways were cruel and, and very, very hurtful to the students involved. I think it's really important to say that all of us involved in the education space have a duty of care to students. And that duty of care becomes even more prominent and more important um, in a time of pandemic. So, look, I welcome the fact uh, that the president of GMIT has apologised on behalf of the institution. I understand the governing authority is investigating the matter there, and I probably shouldn't say anything that would in any way prejudice that outcome. But, mm. look, it was an extremely hurtful comment, um, extremely hurtful comment, entirely inappropriate and absolutely shouldn't have happened. Now, uh, before I let you go, the final point is, and you're not Minister for Health now, you have other responsibilities, but yes. uh, anything that is decided about the pandemic will, of course, go to Cabinet. And I'm just wondering how ready you all are, given the concerns some people have about restaurants and pubs and socialising. I mean, is the government prepared to do the really unpopular thing like Angela Merkel is doing in Germany? If the numbers go sky high, would you close down the country for Christmas? So, 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 we, so weirdly, I actually think when you talk about the, the unpopular thing, I, I weirdly think that the people of this country, the overwhelming majority, have always wanted us to take actions to keep themselves and their families safe uh, above and beyond all other considerations. That's always been my sense of this. At the moment, there is no public health advice uh, from NEFIS that we need to take uh, any further actions. And uh, the situation in Northern Ireland is one of particular and acute concern at the moment. We do share an island. The virus doesn't understand uh, the politics of the island of Ireland. Um, there will obviously be a North-South Ministerial Council this week. The Cabinet is due to meet um, on the 22nd, so next Tuesday, and is due to meet again on the 29th of December. So um, there will be no Christmas holiday in terms of the government and our public health officials monitoring this virus very, very closely. Being honest, I believe people now more than ever do need do need a meaningful Christmas, as the Taoiseach refers to it. Um, it has been an extremely lonely uh, and isolating year for people of all ages, genders, parts of our country. I think there's a way of doing it safely. Um, and my, my real appeal to people, and, and I don't mean to be flippant about this, but if you decide to go to the pub tonight to have a bite to eat with your friends, don't book a restaurant for two hours later and then have another gang of people around to the house at the weekend. Like use our use that common sense that that Irish people have oozed uh, right throughout this pandemic. I, I think that's the best way of getting through the next few weeks. But um, if, if the numbers the, if the numbers keep going up, I mean, if we're looking at five, six hundred by the end of this week, you're not, I presume you're not ruling out that you might have to be more draconian and interfere with that well, meaningful Christmas. Well, I equally don't want to, to don't want to say anything that suggests that that's being considered because there, there isn't any consideration being given to further actions as of now. Of course, our public health emergency team always monitor this really closely. They generally meet on a Thursday, which is tomorrow. Um, and of course, they'll be keeping uh, government up to date. But I'm not aware as a member of government of any uh, suggestion of any imminent uh, new measures being required. So at the moment, it is it is up to each and every one of us uh, to do what we can do to keep each other safe. But we'll be monitoring the situation extraordinarily closely. And as you've said, now that for the very first time, the beginning of the end is beginning to emerge. Um, let's let's now more than ever hope for follow the public health advice, keep each other safe. And we're going to get through this. And 2021, if we're talking this time next Christmas, I hope we'll be talking in a very, very different space and uh, nor normal, whatever that is. It seems so long ago now. Uh, I would very much be back like that. <laughs>
Simon Harris, Minister for Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science. Thank you very much for joining us to reflect back on what it was like to face a pandemic back in February. Now we're coming to the end of our series here on News Talk, where we've been looking back at some of the most influential moments, the most influential news stories of the past 20 years. And nothing has been, well, certainly not in my own lifetime anyway, bigger than the COVID-19 pandemic. So we decided we're going to check in with one of our guests that we spoke to, that we heard from here on Lunchtime Live over the past couple of months as to how the pandemic affected him and his family. Uh, Andrew Louth joins us here on News Talk today. Um, Andrew, thanks for being with us again this afternoon. But Will you just remind people of your story? Thanks, Andrea. Yeah, so back in March, really when the COVID-19 pandemic was starting to escalate, not just in Ireland, but around Europe, um, my, my dad and my grandmother went for lunch on the 14th of March up in Dublin. My dad lives in Kilkenny, my grandmother lives in Dublin, and it was two days after uh, the, uh, then T. Shuckley of Radcar closed all the schools. You may remember that speech mm. that he gave in Washington. And so my dad paid a visit to my grandmother, his his mum, and they went for lunch. They went to my grandfather's grave and they did everything they would have normally done on a weekend. He used to go up to her every weekend. And with two weeks later, on the 28th, my grandmother had passed away from uh, after contracting COVID-19 and my dad was very ill in hospital after being diagnosed with COVID-19 as well. This was at the very start, Andrew, of the pandemic when like, we really knew very little about it. The only thing we really knew was that it was fasting a lot. It, it, was, um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was spreading a lot faster than... Uh, I think anybody really anticipated. I remember I was out on the campaign trail with uh, Leo Varadkar during the general election and we only knew a little bit about it because of how it was spreading in China, in the Wuhan, in the Wuhan area and even then it didn't see, it, not that it wasn't taken seriously but so little was known about mm. it that it, didn't, it wasn't anticipated that it was going to spread just as quickly as it did. And really, when it hit Europe, you may remember when it uh, hit Italy and in the Bergamo region, and then all of a sudden we found that it was here and in the UK, and it just spread quicker than than possibly any of us could yeah. have known. Just to put into context, on the 14th uh, of March, uh, when my dad met my grandmother, there was only 20 cases um, uh, that were uh, recorded of COVID-19 that day. So that's just an indicator of how early on in the yeah. pandemic it was. It must have been a very difficult time, Andrew, for you and your family. It was. It was. Um, I Because when my grandmother had passed away and my dad had been brought to hospital, we were we had entered lockdown. So okay. I was working and living up here. I was still going into the office every day. And my parents were down in Kilkenny. I couldn't see them. I could I could keep in touch with them, but with my grandmother going into hospital, now we were we were lucky in the sense that uh, a family member of ours is a nurse and was able to see her, so she wasn't completely on her own when she passed away. Because I know there are so many mm-hmm. families out there that didn't have that set, that didn't have that that a family member would go into hospital and they couldn't see them 
asked and that then they couldn't see them and then they get that phone call to say that they passed away. So we were lucky in that regard. But it was just it was just it all happened really, really quickly between what happened with my grandmother and uh, people listening who may have listened to our first conversation together mm-hmm. remember that I said that it felt like that she hadn't left because my dad was still very sick at the time in the days afterwards as well so suddenly the the ship the the worry was shifting from what was going on there to what was going on with my dad yeah and and that level Andrew I can't imagine that that level of you know worry and stress and anxiety and the unknown your grandmother had just passed away. Your dad is now in hospital, sick with 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 COVID nineteen as well. And God, just the the level of concern and that distance. You know, I know Dublin and Kilkenny aren't a million miles apart, but at a time like that, they they really are. They are, and again, it just goes back to what we knew then, and really, it was very little in compared to what we know now, and so everyone seemed was much was much happier to kind of stick to the guidelines staying at home not traveling with mm. remember we were we couldn't travel outside two kilometers never mind five or the county boundary this was at two kilometers when it was at the lockdown was at its highest so really in that sense where i was living at the time kilkenny did feel like a million mm. miles away your granny's um when she passed away you you didn't have the funeral at that time andrew no we didn't we at the time again there was it was the strictest of the shutdowns when uh, services weren't happening and they were all happening remotely and there was uh, there was, she was cremated and uh, my sister was able to go out to that but she couldn't go into the crematorium. She stayed in, in her car outside. And so really, even when the country opened back up again, we decided that we were going to wait until the 17th of September, which was a Thursday. And it was, and we waited until then because it, it, initially restrictions did prevent us from mm-hmm. having that. But we then decided that if we, were, if we were going to have a service, we were going to make it as special as we possibly could. And we chose the 17th of September because that would have been the anniversary of her and my grandfather. Yeah. And my grandfather passed away in 1988. So he was, he left us 32 years ago. But if he was, if he was still alive at the time, they would have been married for about 60 years. Okay. So it just seemed, it just seemed like the right time to have Absolutely. that Absolutely, yeah. Your dad subsequently um, left hospital, got out of hospital and, and, and is back home. How is he now, Andrew, like eight months on? Yeah, he's good. Initially, he was uh, kept in hospital for nearly two weeks. And there was a bit of a delay in him getting out because there was kind of, uh, there seemed to be initial issues with uh, his lungs and in his liver. and uh, Just uh, blood tests weren't uh, coming back completely satisfactory in the initial stages after he was recovering but when he was released from the time he was released he recovered at home for a couple of weeks and then he was back out and he was doing the gardening and doctors are happy with his progress now Mm. he's back at work so yeah that is uh, thankfully uh, is thankfully very well now and I think it should be noted that there was always a concern for my dad when the at the offset of this pandemic because he got a kidney transplant in 2006 okay. and 
the drugs he had to take at the time, or the, the drugs he still has to take, I should say, they suppress his immune system, which meant that any infection could make him very sick. And so obviously that was one of the Just big worries yeah. at the time when this started. We're heading into the Christmas period now, Andrew. I know it's been a, it's been a, a you know, a very difficult year for you and and your family. And I'm sure you're looking forward to a little bit of much re- needed rest and recuperation yourself um, back at home now over the next couple of weeks. But when you see people over the past couple of months, you know, look, vast majority of people have really done their best and they've stuck to the rules and adhered to the guidelines. But when you see people maybe taking the guidelines and the regulations that little bit less seriously, like given giving everything that you've been through and your family has been through, how does it make you feel? I, I'm very wary to judge people uh, that aren't completely uh, flouting the rules. They're, they might be pushing the line a little bit. If they're pushing the line a little bit, I tend not to judge because I think they are just trying to get back on with their lives and I do think that and certainly I've experienced this in my own friend group um, that friends and family and people around you really have a part to play in this so just even you know you, you see people talking about how busy restaurants are since they reopened or how busy gastropubs have been since they reopened I really think that it takes it it's what we've been told for the last couple of weeks that there is an element of personal responsibility and that we need to assess each situation as we see it. And if it's something like, say, me, you, and the Lunchtime Live team, where we're all going out for a dinner and we get to the restaurant and I suddenly see that there's a lot more people in there, that's not necessarily to say that the restaurant is doing anything wrong, Mm. but just there's a few more people in there than I'm I'm quite comfortable with. And I decide at the last minute, actually, no, I'm not quite comfortable with this. I'm going to go back home. You guys go in and enjoy it. I think there needs to be that level of support and understanding from friends and peer groups. And certainly I get that from my own. And I just think that they're like friends and family have a big part to play in each individual in with each individual at the moment. They need to be understanding that some people are more comfortable with what their horizons are, what their surroundings are than others might be. And I just think before we judge and we start pointing fingers like, oh, look what all these people are doing. I just think we need to take all of that into account before making those kind of judgment calls. Well, look, have a nice Christmas, Andrew, because it's well deserved. Um, And I know certainly for you and your family, you know, COVID-19 has proven to be a, a really, really difficult period for you. So I do want to thank you again for joining us here on Lunchtime Live. It's time again to consider one of the most significant events of the last 20 years that we've been doing across the station. And today, it's what we're still living through, the worldwide COVID pandemic, as science editor for The Times, Tom Whipple, has spent the last year covering it. And Tom joins us now in News Talk. Afternoon, Tom. Afternoon, hello. I suppose no more than anybody else, uh, and you know, because we've all been in lockdown to a lesser or greater degree during the last year, has it been difficult for you to do your job? 
It has been. And I don't know if you heard right on cue a baby shouting in the background. <laughs> <laughs> like, I have my own sound effects to highlight the difficulties of working from home. Uh, yeah, well, that's become actually that's and that's that kind of a heartwarming thing. It's become quite standard now that nobody before last year, say on a radio show, you'd be going, what's that sound in the background now? It's, you know. Uh, and I was kind of, we accept that, that there are those uh, background noises. So if you had to kind of parcel out your day, you know, uh, between looking, uh, looking after kids and your partner getting to work and you getting to work, etc. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That. Like, like so, so many, so many people, um, you know, I've been, so I've, I've got three children. Um, I've got a one year old who's on the way out now with my wife, to, who's going to go and pick up my children from school, but she's got a book to write. So it was just been a case of getting up early and uh, working before they wake up and then just dividing things as best as best we can. Um, you know, it's the same for everybody around the world. When in the last year, Tom, and I assume it was earlier in the year, uh, did you start to think, God, this is very serious? Uh, I, you know, because obviously there had been other pandemics or prudential pandemics and things to be worried about. But this was uh, this is really going to impact everybody in the world. Yeah, look, I mean, I think this is um, that we're used in science to talking about potential apocalypses. You know, it's, mm. it's one of the things we do. We write about the risk of super volcanoes exploding or meteors hitting us. And at the beginning, I think this was just another potential apocalypse that probably wasn't going to happen, and we we're probably going to be fine. Um, but I really remember that you know, early on in it, I. Yeah, I, I asked a Nobel Prize winner whether the press was over-egging this. And, and he, he sort of said to me, conspiratorially, I, I, I've, I've got a house in the country with a moat and I'm stockpiling corned beef. And I thought, well, <laughs> you know, if, if he's saying that to me, then we're not over-egging it, not at all. Um, and I think everyone would say we probably weren't. And, and given that, you know, it's, it's, it, has, it is still having a direct effect upon public health, What's your attitude or your policy towards uh, giving uh, uh, giving some ventilation to the uh, scientific outliers, the ones who say, you know, it's who argue it's not as serious as it appears, we're all overreacting, etc. It's been it's been difficult because you know science is about dissent. Um, it's about not questioning the orthodoxies. Um, I, I, th- I think what you have to do is is draw. Draw a line between, uh, so I'm the science correspondent and I write about the empirical truth. Um, and given our shared facts and our shared uncertainties, you can make uh, statements that are then policy, uh, philosophical statements are about weighing up priorities and that's completely well and good so i'm i'm not taking a stance on on you know the the whether we should lock down whether we could lock down mm. but i would take a stance on whether they work um and i don't th- i wouldn't wish to amplify people who are saying that pcr tests are all false positives or all of these other very strange sort of conspiracy theories that, that have popped up that, that are simply manifestly not true yeah the, the and plus also and and i imagine being science correspondent it's uh, uh, the, the kind of interactions you'd have with the public uh might have been less last year than there might be in other sections of the paper but suddenly everyone's an epidemiologist uh did have you got much more reaction this year to to your work than you had previously 
I have, I have indeed. Um, yes, I, I, I was just. This is th- th- this interview was just a brief break from being abused on Twitter. <laughs> um, oh, it genuinely was. Um, so yes, and you know, the, it's it's odd because you know previously we lived in a world where science wasn't the most important thing in the paper, and that's fine. Um, it was something people read interesting things about clever people doing interesting stuff, um, and now now it's political, and of course course when things get political people get angry um and people you know everyone is justifiably interested in this and has opinions on this um and it's just an inevitable consequence of that that things will also get toxic in some spheres and i think you've just got to accept that actually that's an interesting point you do uh, uh, touch on because an awful lot of this uh, an awful lot of decisions that people are advocating in any direction are, are are as much political as they are scientific if if we were to go purely on science We'd, we'd all be locked into our homes now. We wouldn't be let out until it was over. Well, I guess, I mean, if you were, if you were to go purely on science and your goal was entirely to stop the transmission of the virus, then that's what you'd do. But science tells you what is, and then politics tells you what you should do, and that's based upon what your priorities are. That's based on, you know weighing up things like what like the economy and you know like schools and education and mental health and whether you've got a granny who lives on her own at christmas mm. and maybe hasn't got that many years to live anyway um all of these are things that that science this is not the realm for science and it can't you know it it can't do anything other than inform the decisions that you make and i think it's always important to keep those two things different and i've spoken to scientists throughout this scientists advising the government who've said that you know they they they're very grateful they're not the one in the decision in the room making those decisions and having to weigh up these just impossible policies yeah, I imagine also as well, it's very interesting from a point of view, human psychology and probably a lot of uh, next year you'll rep- be reporting on various studies about how people uh, reacted to all this, uh, which will be fascinating, uh, really. Tom, thanks very much for uh, taking time out uh, to talk to us today. And uh, you can go off now and, and uh, tend to that child, though I'm sure, you know, Tom's partner was looking after her as well. Uh, there will be more coverage, obviously, in the COVID epidemic on The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cody later on. We want to revisit our series here in News Talk, exploring the 20 most influential moments of this century thus far, as voted on by you, the News Talk listeners. So we've had uh, we've had some great ones. We, we've had Saipan. We've, of course, had 9-11. We've had the election of Barack Obama, the election of Donald Trump. We've had boom and bust. We've had plenty more in between. Today we're talking about one that we continue to live through, uh, COVID-19. Of course, this was voted uh, high up there in, in the most influential moments uh, of this century. And and to discuss it, I'm joined by uh, two different people. Uh, Rachel, who suffers the effects of long COVID, and Declan Connolly, who was one of the first people in Ireland to be diagnosed with COVID-19. Listen, you're both very welcome, folks, uh, to the show. Uh, Declan, if I can start with you, uh, when I say one of the first, when were you diagnosed and how did you pick up COVID? 
Um, good, good afternoon, Karen. Um, let's see if, uh, if if I go back. Myself, myself, and my 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 wife. We we we've been going to uh, to visit very good friends of ours in Germany every year for oh I suppose close on near, nearly thirty years now. We normally head over in February. And we we go to Munich and then head down to Austria for a few days skiing. So we had done the exact same this year. We'd headed down to uh, we're, we're we're down in Austria with our friends for a few days. And whilst we were down there we met up with some we met up with some other friends of ours and uh, so that was great we had a few great days down the mountain and we were flying back on March 1st and again no, no nothing nothing peculiar or strange there we were aware that uh, coronavirus was um, you know it was in Europe at that stage mm. it was in Italy um, but it wasn't anything you know it certainly it, it wasn't Okay, we were maybe washing our hands a bit more, being a little bit more cautious, but it certainly hadn't. Uh, the, the awareness wasn't quite there at that stage. Um, but on the Wednesday, we we, we flew back on. Uh, I, I do recall it was a Sunday, March first. We flew back. Uh, on, on that Sunday and on the Wednesday morning we got a phone call from Germany to tell us that uh, one, one of our friends one of the people we've been with for the few days had tested positive for uh, for, for coronavirus so, so that so, was our so, so you then did you then what have to contact the HSE here yourselves or contact your local doctor or, you know I'm conscious the systems were only being put in place at this time so so what happened yeah, and I have to say that there, there was there was plenty there was plenty of confusion at the time. But but the first the first thing we did the, the first thing we did is uh, we we rang our both myself and my wife we, we rang our respective GPs who then put us in touch with uh, public health. Uh, we immediately uh, self isolated, and then over the next um, couple of days, again there was a little bit of confusion because it said uh, systems were just being put put in place. Originally, they were going to send. Uh, an ambulance straight out to test us. Mm. In fact, the, uh, the the ambulance had arrived to the corner of the street we'd arrived on, but then uh, there, there was a change of plan at that stage and the ambulance turned turned back again. They just left in a few uh, face masks, masks, told us to keep isolating. They were still trying to work it out. Um, but then by the following day, um, yeah. my, my wife started to feel a bit under the weather. So again, we called public health again. And uh, again, the, uh, the this time a paramedic did come out and uh, carry out the carry out the test. And, it, it, and it, it's so interesting. Listen to you talk about it. There was such confusion. You know, it's it's so seen that there's still kinks in the system now, but it really is so seamless compared to that. Like, given how little was known, were, were you quite worried at the time? Um, I, I won't even say worried. I won't say worried because even though my wife was feeling a little, was feeling what uh, was feeling under the weather, but she mm. wasn't feeling particularly sick at, at that stage. And our friends in Germany who who had had contracted uh, coronavirus again, he was feeling under the weather, but not particularly, not very yeah. very sick. How were you feeling? And at that stage, I was still feeling fine. I had gone out. I I was in the middle. I was at the very end stages of training for a marathon. I was supposed to be running a marathon on the Saturday, you know. And I had that Wednesday morning before the phone call. I'd run. I'd gone out to my normal morning run, final ten k before I was going to t- take on the big day on the on, on the Saturday. But um, oh, well, well, but that could pay to that. <laughs> your your wife, I understand, did get quite sick though, didn't she, Declan? She did. Now, as, as things worked out, um, so my wife was, uh, in fact, at that stage, everyone that was diagnosed with the virus was brought into hospital and into an isolation room in the hospital. And uh, so my wife was brought in on the 
on the Friday. Um, I was brought in myself on the on the Monday. But even at that stage, my wife wasn't feeling she wasn't feeling terribly ill. But, uh, but by the time I was being discharged from the hospital, say I was in there for five days. Um, but at that stage, that's when my wife started to feel quite quite, quite sick. And uh, she was finding it very, very difficult to breathe. Her oxygen level and her blood was, was very low. And uh, she just felt generally very, very unwell. Uh, that this, this was probably, I'm sure, the point you started to get worried um, um, I, I have to admit that at, uh, at this stage and certainly back then, you know, uh, because even though we were only a couple of rooms away from each other in the hospital, in the hospital, we couldn't see each other. And, um, you know, so a conversation was being done by by text or by phone or, 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 or whatever. But when I could hear her voice on the end of a phone, you know, struggling to breathe. Yeah, I have to say there was a, there was a few days there where I was very, very concerned. Uh, how's the health now? Um, fine, health is fine. I I recovered again. I didn't have that bad, so it did take me a few weeks to shake it off. Um, but but I did shake it off, and I was I was fine. And once I, once once that was gone, it was uh, for, for me. It was straight, straight back to normal. It took my wife that bit longer, you know. But then, but she did end up with viral pneumonia and all that. So I suppose you're not going to get over that in a few weeks. But uh, but no, but she did get over all those COVID symptoms, you know. Yeah. After, it took a couple of months, but she she did get over it. Well, it's good. It's good to hear that you're both in finer fettle. Now, if people are just tuning in, uh, this is all part of News Talk's uh, coverage of the 20 most influential moments of the 20th century. And Declan was one of the first people, and you heard it there, how confusing it all was at the time, both for him and for the authorities when someone was diagnosed with COVID. Uh, Rachel is on the line uh, as well. Uh, Rachel, I I understand uh, you didn't shake off COVID as, as quickly as Declan. You were one of these people we hear of suffering from long COVID. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I, I was diagnosed on the 9th of October, um, you know, community transmission. And I suppose at the time, Kieran, um, the cases in Ireland were about a thousand a day. So it was very seamless, to be honest. And like with uh, Declan, you know, I was I got a test very quickly. I am frontline. I work in the bank. So I took myself out of, out of work fairly quickly. And, and by the Friday of that week, I was, I was tested positive and I was very surprised actually and something that I wanted to say is that you know I didn't show any of the normal publicized symptoms of COVID I'd no cough I'd no temperature you know I'd no sore throat I, 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 I never lost my, my taste or yeah. smell you know it really to me it really felt like that I was getting a sinus infection and I remember saying to my manager at the time it's 100% not COVID absolutely not you know but then by that weekend, I started feeling quite ill, very, very weak, um, didn't trust my body. You know, I was nervous going up and down the stairs. I was very, very dizzy, nauseous, migraines. And, you know, I suppose I'm young, I'm healthy. You know, I expected that, you know, I'll be back in work in three weeks. Um, and and that's really not the case. I mean, I had a, I had a call with a doctor on Monday who certified me off for a further eight weeks. Um you know, before COVID, you know, I worked full time. I'm a mom. You know, my life is very busy. And, and now, you know, I can barely leave the house. I don't have the energy to leave the house. I wake up with migraines every day. You know, I have pains all over my body. And, you know, I'm just one of a thousand people, you know, thousands of people in Ireland who are actually, you know, going through this long COVID. And there's no answers and there's no understanding Um now, I did end up in A&E uh, on the bank holiday weekend. I couldn't get myself in front of a of a GP to get my oxygen levels tested. So, you know, I did, I would consider myself having a mild to moderate 
dose of COVID. Um, and and have you noticed, is it starting to alleviate at all, Rachel? Or, or like, no. are you worried about this kind of lingering, you know, indefinitely? It, it's really like, you know, I'm part of a Facebook group um, and it's it's uh, COVID cases Ireland. And the people on that who have had COVID for, for seven, eight months and they're still, some of them can't even get up out of bed. Um, you know, on any given day, it's, you know, very frightening. And it's not really being discussed. You know, it's not being discussed. I don't think Neff have mentioned long COVID. Um, maybe they have, maybe they haven't, you know, but, it, you know, and then if you look even worldwide, you know, they're saying one in 10 people are suffering with long COVID. Um, I, I'm very grateful that I went into A&E because they referred me on to the, the post-COVID clinic in Vincent Hospital, yeah. which to be honest, is like a lottery to get into. Like people are trying their best to get in there and, you know, I mean, somebody who's been sick for two, two and a half months, you know, they have a right to go in and make sure that their organs are not damaged long term and, you know, and to get a bit of understanding because, you know, as much as your GPs are available, all I'm hearing from GPs at the moment is we don't really understand it, you know. I, 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 like it. It must be to go through anything that affects you that badly, you know, must be this awful experience. But for most people, at least they know they'll come out the other side of it. Is is that the worst yeah. thing? Like, I suppose, you know, what I would like to, to get out there is like, don't assume because you're young and healthy that this is not going to affect you. You know, don't assume, you know, that you're, you know, that you're going to break the guidelines that are there. Because, look, if I get ill, sure, I'll be I'll be fine in a few weeks time. You know, that's not the case. You know, um, and th- because it's such a new virus, you know, we mm. don't really understand it. So we can't assume, we can't assume anything. I can't assume that, you know, in four months time that I'm going to be okay. All I want to do is feel normal again. Like that's, that's I say but that to when, myself. When you say, you know, sorry, Rachel, when you say feel normal, like what, what is the one thing you heard Declan was talking about the fact that he was due to run a marathon, I think on the mm. Saturday and he got diagnosed on the Friday. So that, that, that kind of nipped that plan in the bud. Like what, yeah. what is the thing that you'd love to do? What is the thing that you're, you're missing being able to do most? Go back to work. Really? Believe it or not. Yeah. Believe it or not. And why just because, because of the human contact with us? Or? Absolutely. I'm a very, I'm a very social person. Um, my job, I interact with people day in day out um, you know it, it, it feeds me you know that human contact that I need um, and that I love and, and and you know I spend most days here in the house on my own like that's the reality of it I don't have yeah. the energy to go out you know when I have the energy to go out I go out, I go out shopping and then in the afternoon you know I, I, I'm just I, I can barely function I can barely function I have no energy um, and you know every day I wake up with a migraine my migraine's so bad yeah. You know, it's very difficult to function with a migraine and nothing works, no matter what I what I take, um, paracetamol, norfin, you know, Sudafed, norfan plus, nothing works for it at all. And, you know, there's days where I, I, I literally stand up from the couch to go in to get a phone charger and by the time I reach the door, I forget what it is that I got up uh, off the couch to get. My, me- my memory's very bad, can't yeah. concentrate. So going back to work for me, is me being normal and me being able to function. Rachel, listen, we hope, we hope, fingers crossed, and I'm sure everyone listening hopes this as well, that that you'll be back to work uh, before long. Uh, Rachel there suffering the effects of long COVID, as you heard, and before Rachel, we spoke to Declan Connolly, who's one of the very, very first people in Ireland to be diagnosed with COVID-19, having picked it up in Italy. Uh, We've got a text in from Rory in Killarney, who says, I'm suffering since June with everything that Rachel is describing. The latest symptom is losing the ability to drive and panic attacks behind the wheel. 